This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we are on question 64. I remember being little and having internal debates with myself and I think with others about who was actually dumb and who was actually dumber in the movie Dumb and Dumber. Was it Jeff Daniels or was it Jim Carrey? And for some reason, this question to me had vital importance. And obviously now, I think, of the many questions that Dumb and Dumber stirs up, that is one of the least. It's a pedantic question. It's a a philosopher's question. It's not a practical question. It doesn't have weight. I guess in that its answer doesn't change anything. What I hope as I do this podcast, what I strive for is to ask questions that aren't merely pedantic, to ask questions that, depending on the answer, real changes in my life or my perspective are going to occur. So today's question on the out front, why did Jesus only go to the Gentiles, especially if you're not a Christian, might sound pedantic, might sound uh, minutiae, detail-oriented. It's not. It's a big deal, I think. At least, it has the potential to be a big deal. But anyway, enough jabbering about the question of the question. (laughs) Let's just get into it. Here we go. The formula for today's episode is pretty straightforward. I'm going to start right here in a moment reading our main piece of scripture. Out of that comes our question, or in other words, our main problem. One problem that I see arising from this text. But, lest you fear, I'll immediately give you two pretty satisfying logical answers or solutions to that problem. But, being the nature of who I am and the nature of this podcast, I'll end the show with two complaints, and these complaints are pretty much emotional complaints, with those two answers. And then we'll be done. Bada bing, bada boom. Okay? Let's go. Our passage is out of Matthew 15. This is pretty much right dab in the middle of Jesus' ministry on earth. We're going to pick it up in verse 21 and read through verse 28. As... Usual, I'm reading from my personal Bible, which happens to be an ESV translation. That's English Standard Version. Okay, here we go. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Yeah, so the question is simple. Why doesn't Jesus go to the Gentiles? Specifically here we have a Canaanite woman, a woman from not Israel, from another people group. Specifically a people group that historically the Jews had had their differences with, to put it lightly. 
and we don't know what malady her daughter has, if she's just possessed with a demon, or if she's possessed with some sort of sickness or physical malady that a demon is inspiring. But whatever the cause, it's clearly distressful. So this woman's crying out, last resort, crying out to Jesus. Jesus, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And he says, get out of here. I'm here for the Jewish people. They're my children. I shouldn't give bread to the dogs when my children need to be fed still. Ouch, burn! He just called this woman a dog. If Jesus was running in a political race in 2016, and I was running against him, that would be my byline that I'm slapping in all my negative ads, right? Jesus calls woman a dog! What sort of misogynistic, sexist dude is this Jesus? He calls women a dog? Who does he think he is? Right? In our current context, we would run him over for saying something like that. Thankfully, and wonderfully in this passage, Jesus is awestruck by this woman's zeal and faith in the moment. That even after he essentially says, no, get away from here, she still begs him. Um, and he has compassion on her and heals her daughter. So the story has a happy ending. But still, the general question of, Jesus, you're God. You're the king of all things. You actively sought out ministry in this world for three years. Why did you confine yourself to just the Jewish people? Why to that small fraction of the pie of the world? Why that small people group when there are millions of people walking on the face of the earth that would obviously benefit from seeing you, benefit from being healed by you, even if it's only a cousin's cousin's cousin who comes in contact with you? Why not? So, that concludes this portion of the program, talking about the problem, stating the problem. Now, for your solutions. Two answers, right? Here's answer number one. God had a plan for revealing himself to the nations, for revealing who he was and what he was going to accomplish in time. And that timeline established that he would first go to the Jewish people. All along, he's used the Jewish people as his voice to the nation, as his instrument. So it would only make sense then that when he comes in the flesh, he's coming first and foremost to the Jewish people. Now, that's a very simplified way of stating that answer. It gets more complex or maybe more strategically laid out if we start looking at why did God feel the need to go to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And we hear this kind of over and over again from Paul as well later in Acts and Paul's letters. And it's not really my intent to... And it's not really my intent to lay out all of the principles of why God went about doing that in that way. That, to me, seems like another question, like, God, why did you establish this plan, right? That's a question that we could spend hours on in and of itself. The angle we're going at it today is more like, okay, so that's the plan, but, but why did you hold to that, really? There's a lot of resources I could quote, but uh, this one was just, I, I had to choose it just because of the name of its website and because I'm kind of a politic snob. FinalTrump.com, <laughs> which as far as I could tell has no relation to Donald Trump. It's talking about the final trumpet of Revelation. They attempted to answer not specifically this question. They were actually looking at a passage a few chapters earlier in Matthew 10 when Jesus sends out his disciples to evangelize to the people and he says, don't go to the Gentiles. We could have used that passage as our litmus test to excavate this idea, but uh, I chose rather this 
Matthew 15 passage because it's a little more hard-hitting when you see this specific Gentile woman come up to Jesus. But anyway, dealing with that question, FinalTrump.com says this, The disciples could not go unto the Gentiles until the 70 weeks had been fulfilled. For more information about the 70 weeks, see the verse-by-verse account of Daniel chapter 9. Next sentence, After Jesus' death, their exclusive covenant relationship with God would be over. That is, covenant relationship of God with the Jewish people. And the way would be opened, the way being salvation, up for the Gentiles to become grafted into Jesus Christ. Jesus pronounced the curse upon Israel and the fig tree dried up, showing that they had lost favor. We know that Cornelius was not accepted until A.D. 36. It goes on and on and starts talking about that Daniel passage and all this, but uh, this gets way into covenant theology and various ideas about the way God revealed himself and provided salvation to people in different eras and in different covenants. So the writer here is saying, look, God laid out promises to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So before salvation could be opened up to all the nations, these promises had to be fulfilled. The old covenant had to be fulfilled, had to run its course, essentially. And that is why Jesus chose not to run up and get all the snakes out of Ireland during his earthly ministry. I know if you're not a theology snob, a bunch of what I just said probably doesn't make any sense and you don't have context to to put this square into that square hole or whatever. But just hang with me for a moment that this is a pretty understandable answer to the problem. And a lot of people disagree about what prophecies and what covenants and when and where and how they're fulfilled and when they're fulfilled. All these things are debatable and have been debated essentially since Jesus's resurrection. But the main point is still commonly agreed upon, right? That God had a plan and that plan started with the Jewish people and from the Jewish people extended out to the nations. And because of when Jesus came, God's plan hadn't really reached outside of Judea and the Jewish people yet. So Jesus had to come unto his own first. That's answer number one. Answer number two, for me personally, of course, being into story is more satisfying. And that I'm, I'm going to just kind of summarize as saying Jesus wasn't the storyteller. He was the story. He's not the newspaper man circulating the story. He's the guy in the newspaper. He's the one that the newspaper man writes about. So it wasn't his responsibility to go to the four corners of the world. His responsibility was to do the stuff that he was planning on doing, and then other people would circulate that story throughout the world. He died and resurrected from the dead. That is a big deal. He healed a bunch of people. Those are things that are remarkable, and you don't need to go to the four corners of the world to make those things be remarkable. You can do them from wherever, and then the people that witness that can take that story everywhere. To make an analogy of that, it's as if Jesus was the one who dressed up his wiener dog in that crazy teddy bear outfit so that it looks like the wiener dog is the teddy bear when he's running towards you. He's the one that created that idea. And we are the ones that took that video and loaded that video onto the internet so that everyone else could see it everywhere in the world. Jesus wasn't the one that had to take his wiener dog to Russia and to China and to Ecuador. All he had to do was knit the teddy bear fabric and stuff his wiener dog into it. Don't read too much into that analogy. Another way to make this point is that Jesus was limited in that he was one man. So he had to make certain decisions based on his limitedness as a physical being. 
In other words, he had to prioritize his to-do list. GotQuestions.org puts it this way when they try to wrestle with the same question, and I quote, Every ministry must have priorities, and Christ's ministry was no exception. When Jesus sent his disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom, he expressly told them, Do not go the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus did not forbid the preaching to all Gentiles. He did, however, narrow their focus to the areas which should be most receptive, those who knew the law and were expecting the Messiah. Paul, in his missionary journeys, followed the same priority of preaching to the Jews first. This I find a much more satisfying answer. You can't be everywhere, so you want to maximize your output. You want to maximize your message, so you're going to take your message to the people that are most likely to accept it. In this case, the Jews had all these prophecies for a Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. So it's natural to take that message of, hey, yo, I'm the Messiah, to the people that have a context of understanding who the Messiah should be or is. And then, of course, you also get the cool, like, answer to the foreshadowing that happened in Act 1. You know, Jesus could have gone to some Chinese person and been like, yo, I'm the Messiah. And the Chinese person would be like, uh, and the Messiah is what exactly? The guy that frees you from all the law. Cool, huh? And the Chinese man would be like, and, and this law you speak of, and so forth and so with. One last way to look at this is, if you want to make a message have impact, it is often much more desirable and much more impacting to start intimately rather than to start broadly. We see this every time we see an action film think wrongheadedly that in order to make the most impact, we should see the Taj Mahal blown up. No, that doesn't necessarily get our goat. It's not going to emotionally attach us to the film. But if you want the impact of the world completely being pulverized by an asteroid or Godzilla or whatever, show a man right outside of the Taj Mahal whose life now is torn apart by the destruction of the world. See his family destroyed rather than see some monument destroyed. And even though the dramas all may be held within this one family, we're going to feel that so much more because we're invested in this family than the Taj Mahal and the Eiffel Tower being destroyed. Jesus was an effective communicator by starting intimately rather than starting broadly with no depth. He could reach the Jewish people with depth in his short time span. He couldn't reach the Hindu people and the Germanic people and the Pacific Island people, all of those people with depth. He could only hit them broadly, if at all, during his time period. So then, staying within the confines of Jewish heritage and the Jewish cultural context makes sense. All right? So, there's your answers. That's why Jesus initially called this foreign woman a dog. That's why he didn't spend his valuable resources, his precious time, going to all the people of the world. But he stayed in Israel. He stayed in this intimate setting and then relied on the early church to spread his word to the four corners of the earth. All right, here's my two complaints with those two answers. Complaint number one, I feel this intensely right now, once again, as I'm looking at the political arena of 2016. But nevertheless, I think this is a principle that you can find any time period throughout history, and this problem is still going to arise. And that's this us-versus-them ideology. You see this in Jesus' context of us, Jews, 
them Gentiles, or the tribes of Judah versus Samaritans, you know, the real Jewish people versus those half-breed Samaritans, Pharisees versus Sadducees, Zealots versus the Romans, and nowadays we see it Christians versus Muslims, capitalism versus communism, the Nazis versus everyone. You know, there's this constant need, necessity maybe, within us to always create distinctions between people and races and everything. Bloodlines, economic diversity. We always create this, oh, I'm over here, I'm in this pool. Because we want to be associated with certain people or certain things, and we don't want to be associated with other things. Uh, Akira Kurosawa, in one of his films, he's Japanese director... 50s through the 80s or so, uh, he made a great film, intense thriller, called High and Low. At least that's one of the English translation titles. And in it, the dichotomy of the film is really about this super rich family being attacked, more or less, or held ransom, by a guy who lives in the sewers of Japan. And this super rich family is literally has a giant house on top of a hill, and this villain lives in the sewer. And you spend the first half of the film dealing with the conflict all up on the top of the hill from the rich family's context. And then as the film progresses, you slowly start to sink into the perspective and the environment of the low man. And yeah, he's done some bad things, but he's also living in such a different universe as the other people. You begin to empathize at the very end with his plight. And the film ends with this villain, this low man, screaming, and it's a guttural scream of, the world's broken, there's such injustice, I can't ever be a part of your class. It feels like, when you read this story in Matthew 15, it feels like Jesus is just extending that rod. He's continuing this distinction, class warfare. You're a part of them? Eh. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not a part of us. And from my perspective, the biggest problem with doing that is you don't look at the individual moral failings or moral accomplishments of individuals. You just look at them as good or bad. It's a strictly binary system, and that sucks because the world doesn't actually work like that. And the real venom of that is if someone happens to be good enough to be in your party or in your group, now, because you're saying he's one of us, you have to start covering up the bad crap that that person does, delegitimizing their errors or their sins. You say, oh, oh, it doesn't really matter. That's really not that important. What's important is that he's not Muslim. What's important is that he's a capitalist or, you know, whatever. You start creating these weird laws inside your own head that don't have any bearings on reality because you have to uphold the idealism of your own party. Case in point here, the stupid idea that keeps going around every year you see it on Fox News in America. This idea that there's a war on Christmas. Da -da -da! And conservative Christians come out, guns a-blazing, like, Oh, you atheists, you're trying to take away Christmas from us. Rawr, it's war! And to me, it's completely missing the point, because the war on Christmas is commercialization. The war on Christmas is the idolatry of an infant and mother disambiguatized, disambiguated from the risen king, the god of the universe. The infant taken away from who that infant becomes. But yet we rage against those who don't understand. And we say they're the enemy. Mm-mm. Doesn't accomplish anything good. And because we're battling those atheists, we forget to look at our own shortcomings. We forget to self-examine. That's the big problem. When you're in groups, you don't self-examine. You just 
point at the other group. So why does Jesus do that here? Why does he say, you're a Gentile, you're a dog? My wife and I recently had the pleasure of taking a trip up to Memphis, and we got to go to the Civil Rights Museum, and I was awestruck, once again, by the work and teachings of Martin Luther King. And of course, we all know his I Have a Dream speech, but man, it's so true. This, this idea that he says, you know, I have a dream that one day, and forgive me if I butcher this, I have a dream that my children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Right? The content of their character. Mm, it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's kind of void here in this little story of Jew and Gentile. Second complaint, and this one hits a little closer to home for me. I've probably mentioned this before, but uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is one of my absolute favorite movies, and I, I give it a lot of credit, uh, or at least the Holy Spirit credit, for using that film to keep my faith uh, when I thought it was lost some years ago. But there's a scene in the film, and it's a little unclear whether it's a vision or a dream or whatever, uh, but in the scene, Jesus is walking in the desert, and all of a sudden, from the clefts of the walls around him, dozens upon dozens of lepers come crawling out, and they're all singing to him, essentially saying, Heal me, I can barely walk, Jesus, heal me. I can barely stand, I'm blind, Jesus, heal me. Essentially, they're all saying, We're broken, God, we're broken. Christ, we're broken, heal us. We can't, we can't fix ourselves. Heal us. Complaint number two. If you're Jesus, how do you wait? How do you wait to show revelation to the Gentiles? How do you have that obedience? How do you have that patience? How do you do that? I want to read from Apocalypse Now. I may have quoted this in an earlier episode, um, but I'm going to do it again. So, in Apocalypse Now, Marlon Brando's character has gone rogue. He's Colonel Kurtz, and Apocalypse Now is set during the Vietnam War, and Colonel Kurtz has kind of started his own cult. So the main character of Apocalypse Now throughout the film is searching for Colonel Kurtz because he has a mission to take him out. Well, at the end of the film, he finally finds the colonel, and the colonel gives a long monologue, and I want to read from it. And forgive me, I can in no way read it with the power that Marlon Brando did. But here we go. Kurtz said, I remember when I was with special forces. Seems a thousand centuries ago. Oh, and I should interject here. This scene is a little bit uh, visually graphic, so you may want to skip the next couple minutes if you have a queasy stomach for such things. We went into a camp to inoculate some children. We left the camp after we had inoculated the children for polio. And this old man came running after us. And he was crying. He couldn't see. We, we went back there, and they had come and hacked off every inoculated arm. There they were in a pile. A pile of little arms. And I remember I, I, I cried. I wept like some grandmother. I wanted to tear my teeth out. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I want to remember it. I never want to forget it. I never want to forget. And then I realized, like I was shot. Like I was shot with a diamond. A diamond bullet right through my forehead. And I thought, my God, the genius of that. The genius. The will to do that. Perfect. Complete. Genuine. Crystalline. Pure. And then I realized they were stronger than we. 
because they could stand that these were not monsters. These were men, trained men. These men who fought with their hearts, who had families, who had children, who were filled with love. But they had the strength, the strength to do that. If I had ten divisions of those men, our troubles here would be over very quickly. You have to have men who are moral, and at the same time who are able to utilize their primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment. Without judgment, because it's judgment that defeats us. His point here is that compassion, love, empathy veers you off your plan. In this context, the Viet Cong wanted to win the war, and they had to do everything within their power to stop the other side, America, the South Vietnamese, from winning the war. So they did horrible things. But it was for a specific cause. Here, in Matthew 15, Jesus initially has the inclination to stay on his path, to stay on his plan of not showing salvation, not healing the Gentile people. He has a specific plan, and that is to reveal God's grace and salvation to all peoples, but do it through the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone. How did he have the perseverance to not go farther when he sees all the injustices that were going on in the world, when he sees Romans who are struggling, when he saw foreigners from other lands and knew that they knew nothing of him, they knew nothing of the true God. I think I've mentioned before, probably numerous times now, that one of my favorite films is Jesus Christ Superstar because uh, the, the Holy Spirit used it for me in a time in my life when, I, when my faith was, was dangling on a string and, and this film was part of God's work to, to keep me in faith. But there's a scene in the movie, I'm not sure if it's a dream sequence or a vision or whatever, but in the scene, Jesus is walking in the desert, and all of a sudden, from the clefts of the desert hills, come dozens of lepers, and they're crawling towards Jesus. Dozens of them. And they're all screaming out, singing, of course, because it's a musical, Lord, heal me, I, I can barely walk. Lord, heal me, I'm blind. Lord, heal me, I bleed from every orifice. Lord, we're broken. They're all saying this, essentially, one way or another. We're broken, Lord, we can't fix ourselves. Save us, heal us. And this is impactful here, because although Jesus does heal the Canaanite woman's daughter, and I'm thankful that he did, so thankful, you still have to wonder that... He made decisions in his ministry, and there were people who came to him, plague-ridden, broken people, whom he didn't heal, at least in that moment. How do you make those decisions? God, how, how did you choose that? I know you had a plan to save everyone, but when that plan still involves future stuff, how do you avoid the moment? How do you avoid the compassion of the moment? You are love. How do you not express that right then and there? You know, if you wanted to, you could have gone straight to Rome. You could have gone to, what, I think Tiberius was Caesar at that point. You could have gone to Tiberius. And you could have had the Romans kill you right there, and you could have resurrected right in front of Tiberius himself, and word would have spread like that. We wouldn't have needed the hundred or so years of the church slowly growing to the four corners of the earth. The Roman roads were intact. It could have spread right then and there. It's like the end of Schindler's List. How many more lives? I, I know your will is good. I know your will is good. 
Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.